This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our bi-weekly podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. And I'm here this morning with Eric Schlenker Goodrich, the executive director of the Western Environmental Law Center. Hey, good morning, Jim. Eric uh, Schlenker Goodrich, as I said, is the executive director of the Western Environmental Law Center. Eric's also a good friend of mine, and we've known each other for 15, 16 years. Way too long. Way too long. <laughs> we worked together on the, uh, the Vividal protection situation back in 2004, 2005, 2006, yep. and we've cooperated on a number of other conservation issues here in northern New Mexico, such as the wetland jewels with Amigos Bravos and, um, and some other things. Today we're going to talk about uh, climate change. In New Mexico, the changes at the state and federal level going on with how we deal with climate change and where we're going. So let me just set the stage and then Eric can correct me one way or the other. I'm not feeling particularly optimistic right now. Uh I would not be here today or doing this work. Uh, I would not be a conservationist or a writer if I did not have some optimism to think that we could could change things. But I feel as if uh, really over the past six months, there's just been a barrage of new studies and new science that's just showing that climate change is bearing down on us. And we are doing absolutely nothing as a society. In, in my opinion, we're doing very, very precious little to deal with, with what is actually a really an existential threat. Um, our existence uh, is threatened. And so I want you to make me more optimistic. Today. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when I think about it, there are two levels to the discussion about or, or the debate about climate change and, and action on climate change. The first is the emerging science on climate change. Uh, In October of 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report about our efforts to constrain warming within 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius. And and for those uh, out there who don't track this as much as Jim and I, there there is a general consensus among scientists that to constrain warming within some measure of acceptable impacts, and there's a big question about how you define acceptable, you need to constrain warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius and no more than 2 degrees Celsius. And even with 1.5 or 2 degrees, there is a massive amount of damage to our world. And by world, I mean virtually every single facet uh, of our society and the environment that we live in. So when you look at these reports, they are deeply sobering. They're dire. Yeah, they're dire. I mean, there is no question that we are in an existential crisis. So I think when I, when you take a look at that science, you, I get really sad. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I do too. And I, get, I yeah. get very worried, especially because both you and I, we have children and, and this is a world that they will uh, inherit. Uh, David Wallace Wells, he's a, he's a writer for New York Magazine and he just came out with a book called The Uninhabitable Earth uninhabitable earth. Uh, I'd really encourage people to take a look at that. It's a wake-up call for action. Uh, And I think that's the other level of the debate, which is on the action side. And that's where, despite all the noise that we see in our political dialogue right now, I really think that there has been a, uh, there is a signal that is emerging through that noise. And that signal is quite powerful in terms of how society, our society in particular in the United States, 
is starting to take action. Now, I don't think that means we're suddenly reducing emissions all over the board. I do think that there has been immense progress over the last 10, 15 years to uh, decarbonize, for example, the electricity uh, the electricity sector, especially with coal-fired power plants, um, where we are really moving away from coal fairly rapidly. There's a lot of work to do, but we are, in fact, transitioning to clean energy generation on that front. Uh, that said, a lot of that has been really marginal, really incremental. But I think with, uh, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has introduced a resolution with Senator Markey. Uh, Senator the Green Markey, New Deal. Yeah, the Green New Deal. Senator Markey from Massachusetts, a Democrat, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a uh, representative from uh, New York. They have introduced uh, a resolution to move the federal government forward, and it's called the Green New Deal. And I think that's really exciting. And I think it's really exciting for a couple of reasons. The first, it has changed the debate within a three-month time period. I, I, I am convinced that we have seen a tectonic shift in how the dialogue is carried out uh, on climate change. I think that introduction along with the, uh, the protests, especially in Europe among kids who are leaving school to demand change for their future, I think those two, those two things combined are extremely heartening. Yeah, and I think what's happening is you're seeing the debate broaden out. You know, when I started work on climate change action, this was in the mid-2000s, in the wake of our Via Vidal victory, the, the climate debate was really dominated by uh, technocrats and typically white technocrats in right. government or in nonprofit organizations. Uh, and now what you're seeing with youth as well as people of color, uh, you are seeing a massive expansion of who is actually engaged in the discourse uh, over climate action. That is really, really powerful. Yeah. That is what gives me hope almost more than anything. And that's what's really exciting about the Green New Deal to me is that it is expanding that room for who is part of the dialogue. Uh, on these issues beyond all the mechanics of how the Green New Deal would in fact work. Right. And, and and the other bright spot I feel is actually here in New Mexico, amazingly. I mean, we're we're one of the states that is uh, slated to get hit uh, quite dramatically by shifts in climate. We're, we're drying out, we're warming up, we're already seeing big impacts here. And, and also we're, you know, we're still essentially an oil and gas extraction colony, in my opinion. And so, so in, in a certain way, we've got these huge challenges in front of us. And at the same time, we've got this amazing new governor and we have had a dramatic shift in the makeup of the state legislature. And for the first time, you know, Rachel, your wife, Rachel Kahn from Amigos Bravos and Joe Zupan, the executive director of Amigos Bravos, were in here a couple of weeks ago, both talking talking about the the environmentally environmental and conservation bills being introduced in the state legislature and the actions that our new governor is taking to deal with a lot of climate change. So I see that there's this, there's just dramatic shift at the state level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I think is fascinating is that the, the first, that the environmental community last year during the midterm elections really came out in force. They created political space for folks who were running for office to move into. 
in terms of being aggressive in terms of their messaging and their ideas on climate and conservation action very broadly. And I think that is now paying dividends in terms of the actions that both the governor are taking at an executive level here in New Mexico, but then also at a legislative level uh, in New Mexico. I, you know, th there are areas of concern, in particular, given oil and gas production in the state. Uh, but at the same time, I do think we're seeing a, a foundation laid by political leadership in New Mexico to take climate change uh, seriously. The governor early on in her administration signed an executive order to address climate change. This is a full spectrum uh, executive order that really looks at a variety, that, that very much looks at a variety of sectors in our state that need to account for climate change. And there are really two, two ways that you deal with climate change. The first is stop contributing to the problem. Right. You reduce climate emissions. And so, for example, in an area that I work on very intensively with methane pollution and waste from oil and gas development, the governor, through the Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department and the New Mexico Environment Department, will be moving forward with a stakeholder process followed by a rulemaking process to reduce methane pollution and waste in the state. That's exciting. Uh, at the same time, the other way that you really deal with climate change is you start to build the resilience of our communities and landscapes, given the reality that, uh, you know, and this, is, this goes back to the book, David Wallace Wells, climate change is not a future threat. We live in a warming world. We're we seeing it right now. We're seeing this right now. You think about California wildfires. We're having a fantastic year, you know, in terms of snow uh, up on the mountain. But you only have to look a year back at the miserable year we had last year to yeah, start seeing a climate signal boost in terms of how our landscape is actually functioning in terms of a changing climate. Right. And, and you know, interesting enough, this is, this is a whole other subject we could... Uh, road we could go down on. But, um, you know, you just mentioned how we're having this fantastic year snow-wise, but I was talking to some climatologists and some some other folks who are looking at the snow and they're saying, you know, this, this is actually just kind of an average yeah. year. But because we have gotten used to the increasingly drying climate and the, and the shorter winters with less snow over the past 10 to 20 years, we're we're looking at this one going, especially after last summer, right, and last winter. We're looking at this going. Oh my God, this is fantastic! Like we're see, you know, it's all good, but it's like, eh, this is this is just average. Yeah, scientists have a term for that, right? Shifting baseline. Shifting syndrome. Baseline, baseline. You, you, you syndrome. become used to whatever it is you've just witnessed and experienced. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so you're that's dangerous. You're, the way that you look at these things is distorted. Yeah, and that's you know when I think about the climate action underway, I mean it's actually it's it's, it's a good point relative to the advocacy and the action that will play, take place here in New Mexico, where I feel pretty good about the uh, work that's now being done in the first couple of months of uh, Governor Lujan Grisham's administration and with the legislature, but it's also teasing out long-term where the uh, obstacles will be in terms of really having a uh, long-term trajectory of climate action. And I think what's really important is to not think of climate action as a single point in time, oh, we passed one bill, all, all done. Everything's we can, good. We can go home and, you know, hang out. Uh, uh, we can do, a, we can do, you know, adopt Tim Ferriss's <laughs> yoga <laughs> meditation tea. This is something that, you know, and I think about this, I'm 44 years old now. And, and uh, I think about climate change as sort of there, there's this twin gener generational aspect. In, in one generation, we emitted this vast amount of climate pollution with knowledge of the impacts that it does to the climate that are causing the problems we are witnessing right now. And it will take a single generation over the course of the next 20, 30, 40 years, and really the next decade or so. Yeah. 
to really get a handle on the problem. And the more we delay, the more we don't do anything or only take marginal action, the bigger a problem. So I'm in the prime of my career as a public interest environmental attorney. So there is this, there is this sense of uh, weight right, right. <laughs> on my shoulders of like, wow, I really got to dial it in here. You know, I, I need to be sharp, I need to be focused, and I need to be strategic and think long-term. And I do think that the groundwork being laid in New Mexico, we're doing that, but it's going to require a huge amount of effort, both by political leadership, but also by communities, nonprofit advocacy groups, groups to really uh, expand out the political space, to defend that political space, and to make sure it carries forward in time. Yeah, we have to sustain these efforts over Absolutely. decades in order to get where we need to go. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the issues that are facing New Mexico right now and what is being done at the state level. The Western Environmental Law Center looks works on um, issues mainly affecting public lands, federally managed public lands. Public lands, wildlife, and communities. We're actually increasingly moving into the space of communities. About two years ago, this reflects what I said earlier about broadening the tent for climate action. Uh, we made a commitment to equity, inclusion, and justice. And so we now have a statement of principles and an action plan to follow through on that commitment. And a lot of our climate work has historically been centered on public lands, reining in fossil fuel pollution, climate pollution uh, from oil and gas development on public lands. But increasingly, and you take, for example, Greater Chaco, we're realizing this is not simply a public lands problem. This is a community problem. And that if we're going to deal with climate pollution, we also have to provide tools for local communities, in particular the Navajo communities out in Greater Chaco, to be able to transition away so that they have economic choice and self-determination and they don't feel beholden to the fossil fuel industry. So that community dynamic is increasingly part of our advocacy portfolio. We're talking about climate change, and I wanted to talk about methane here in New Mexico. We have somewhat of a cloud of methane. <laughs> the Four Corners is a, is a, is a worldwide methane hotspot, both because of drilling, both because we do not use our methane that's, that's pulled out of the ground and also because of poor maintenance of old equipment. So I wanted to talk with Eric about that a little bit and discuss uh, what's being done at the state level with that. It's it's worth noting that um, that in New Mexico, methane's a byproduct of oil and gas drilling. It, it is natural gas. It is it the is, prim primary constituent of natural gas. And it is uh, it, it is something that can be sold. Is something that can be used to uh, produce energy. But in New Mexico, by and large, the oil and gas industry does not use that resource, does not sell that resource. They well, not wisely. Not wisely. Yeah. They, they tend to burn it off um, or vent it directly into the atmosphere. And methane is one of the most, if not the most, potent greenhouse gas. There's estimates that about $240 million in natural gas is being wasted. Um, that comes to about $30 million dollars a year, $30 million a year in state tax revenue that's being essentially thrown away. And uh, we, we know that we could put that to good use here in New Mexico. So what's going on with oil, gas, methane? And then what is the, the new governor and the state legislature doing to, to deal with that? Yeah. So what you, what you mentioned before that we have this vast looming methane hotspot uh, over the Four Corners area, and, and the primary cause of that is oil and gas development in the greater Chaco landscape in the San Juan Basin. And, and when you think of methane pollution and waste, you get it from two primary sources, one venting. So when you drill a new oil or gas well, 
the oil and gas company will directly vent methane into the atmosphere. And it, it kind of depends on how it plays out, whether it's a natural gas well or, say, a primarily an oil well. And there's a lot of there's a sort of spectrum uh, of that with an oil well. Uh, right now, that is that is where most oil and gas companies make most of their profit. But with an oil well, you might have a lot of what they call associated gas that flows up in the well bore, and then they vent that directly to the atmosphere. Or we, even with a natural gas well, they may vent it early on because they're trying to get a, a, a more pure form of the natural gas that is required to get into pipelines. And then the other aspect of, of the pollution is it just caused, you know, you think of oil and gas development, it is this spider web of uh, industrial infrastructure spread across vast landscapes. Pipelines, compressor stations, storage tanks, vapor recovery units, the well unit itself. And anytime you have two pieces of metal connect, you might have leaks uh, from the oil and gas production process. And a lot of times what the oil and gas companies will do is they'll try to capture that methane, but they won't actually route it to market for sale. What they'll do is they'll flare it. So they route it up a flare stack and they'll just burn it directly into the atmosphere. That is producing that, more carbon. Yeah, that, that's often viewed in, in ironic. You know, it's it's sort of absurd, but they they view this as a mitigation. Right. Uh, well, because uh, a tool. If they just vent it and it's methane, then it's eighty-seven times as potent as carbon dioxide. Or they can burn it and it's just pure car- pure carbon dioxide. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's it's silliness. <laughs> yeah. So you have this methane hotspot. The the reality is is that in New Mexico, the state has not done much over the course of the last eight or so years under the Martinez administration. If anything, the Martinez administration served as an apologist for the oil and gas uh, industry. And with the methane hotspot, what is very concerning to Western Environmental Law Center is you you also see the prospect of a methane hotspot emerging over the Permian Basin down in the Carlsbad, uh, Hobbs, Artesia area. That that is where the capital investment is flowing. That is where you have 100 over 100 drilling rigs. I think are operative right now. You just have this huge boom, and with major oil and gas companies like Chevron and Exxon moving into the space. So is there is this concern that we may also see a methane hotspot uh, down there. So what do you do about it? The good thing is. Is, is that because it is in fact a commodity that if you can capture the methane and route it to a sales line and to market, you you can actually profit from it. So if you're an oil and gas company, then you know rather than venting it to the atmosphere, we're at least burning it in our say stoves. You know, I have an, I have a gas fired I, my 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 stove at home. I cook off natural gas. I'd like to move off of that at some point, uh, but it's the reality. So at least better to use it and to get some royalties uh, off of it. But at the same time, really got to deal with that upstream production side of the equation. And so the state is now moving forward with a stakeholder process and then a rulemaking process to reduce the amount of methane pollution and waste from uh, the oil and gas sector. It seems so obvious that oil, it seems obvious to me that the oil and gas industry would want this extra $240 million in profit. What's, what's the, why, why don't they want this methane? Yeah, this is, this is the whole talking point of industry that they take, you know, because it's a commodity, they have no market incentive to vent or flare methane. Well, that's disproven by the data, whether it's federal data or whether it's uh, state level data, we know that they vent and flare a vast amount of methane pollution and waste. It's because there's essentially a market failure uh, in the context of, of, of methane where uh, let's take an oil well down in the Permian. The, the, the company who is drilling that well is, 
is wants the oil resource. The associated gas is essentially a nuisance. And because of the pace of drilling, the return on investment for putting in place methane control technologies doesn't fit with their logic, uh, financial logic for that particular well. So what happens is they are very good at extracting the oil resource, profiting off the oil resource. But then what they do is they're very sloppy with dealing with the methane side of the equation. So they either vent it directly to the atmosphere or they have route it to a flare stack and they just burn it up uh, into the atmosphere. And they don't want to invest in the technology or the equipment then to to capture that methane and get it to market. Yeah, when it's you, when you no. run the numbers, they think that they can profit more on a short-term basis by just venting or flaring it rather than routing it to market. Right. And so what you need is, you know, the way I think of markets is, a mar- what do you, how do you think of a market? Like, a, you know, a market in Taos, it, it's bounded. You know, you think of uh, Taos Plaza and it's bounded uh, by the community in terms of how we uh, how we structure that. So what we need is a regulatory framework that actually uh, guides the market forward so that oil and gas companies are making good decisions and that if they don't, they are held accountable to the law and to the people. And so that's what we're looking for with, with a regulatory framework. So we are then looking to move in the right direction that way with the new governor. Yeah, absolutely. And and this, you know, this can flow into a little conversation about the federal side of the equation, but the way we look at the state level action, Colorado has already acted on this front. They have a pretty good rule. Uh, Our sense is we can build on that rule and make an even better rule down here in New Mexico. I like that there's a little competition for who can be more, uh, do more on both climate and conservation action between Colorado and New Mexico. That's healthy competition. It's healthy competition. And it it is really very much operating as a laboratory for action nationally. So New Mexico and Colorado, but I think New Mexico right now in particular, has the possibility of creating the most rigorous uh, methane regulatory framework uh, in the country that will serve the public interest uh, and will really move us down an effective pathway. And that, when you think of federal timelines, uh, that may prompt the federal government to respond really well for this. You know, of course, we, we did good work with the Obama administration right. to get methane rules in place, knocking down, venting and flaring by very significant percentages. Uh, That, of course, was rescinded by the Trump administration. We're in federal court on that, dealing with that in California right now. We've been uh, we've been throwing down with the Trump administration. We were really successful throwing down. Like, you know, for example, we enjoined their uh, attempts to suspend the rule. Um, We defeated in a prior attempt to stay the rule. uh, And now we're in federal court. We feel pretty confident that we're going to be able to beat the Trump administration on this and then go to a new administration, fingers crossed, in 2021 and say, look what New Mexico is doing here. We should do this nationally. Yeah, I think it's worth noting two things. One, in direct relation to the methane, it's it's the Obama administration took an extremely long time to develop a lot of these rules. And uh, in, with it, whether it be methane or the announcement of the Bears Ears uh, National Monument, things like this, the Obama administration was very slow to do it. But part of the reason is, is they, they were rigorous. They went into a lot of detail and they did a lot of, they, they really followed the rules. They, there was a lot of public input. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's been a big benefit when the Trump administration wants to come in and just throw things out. Oh, they are so sloppy. It's absurd. It's it's almost humorous. Right. They're so sloppy and they don't really even understand how things work. And so the Obama administration had laid a groundwork to build off of or to or at least to to hold the line. The last two years. The other thing I want to point out is that in case anybody doesn't know, of course, they definitely know down in Carlsbad, but New Mexico is in an unprecedented uh, oil and gas boom right now. Um, it is it is happening. There are drill uh, 
uh, wells going in every day. And the, the state of New Mexico is pulling in millions and millions of dollars. We have a huge budget surplus. We are sitting pretty because of oil and gas money. So mm-hmm. that, that plays into this the whole equation. Yeah, that's in that, that that's almost what frightens me yeah. uh, more than anything. What, one of the things that New Mexico is doing where I'm very confident on is that we are decarbonizing electricity generation. So when you flick on your light at home, where does that energy, uh, where's that electricity coming from? Increasingly, it's going to come from clean energy from the sun and wind and far less from coal and even natural gas. We've got to, you know, there's some fights we're going to have with say PNM resources and other utilities in the state on natural gas, fire, power generation. We want to minimize, if not eliminate that footprint uh, as much as possible. But I feel very confident about the direction of how we are producing electricity. The huge concern right now is that political leadership is drunk off the uh, oil and gas royalty right. surplus money. You know, it's like $2.2 billion. It's like, that's a lot of money. And if your political leadership on short term, who think on short term timeframes have to get elected, man, you don't want to fight the bear. And the yeah. bear in this instance is the oil and gas industry. So th- there is, I have deep concern that New Mexico may decarbonize its electricity sector and then become essentially an energy colony exporting uh, oil in particular, but also natural gas to other states. And we will essentially eliminate, if not, uh, we we will essentially uh, uh, eliminate all of the benefits of decarbonizing our electricity sector. So that is going to be an enormous fight uh, moving forward. So in other words, you're saying that our electricity that we utilize here in the state will be decarbonized. It'll increasingly come from wind, solar, and other alternatives. In the meantime, we are going to still be exporting Oil energy in particular. that makes climate change even worse. Yes. So we kind of negate our, our Absolutely. benefits. So. Yeah, it's a huge problem. We're going to be taking oil from the Permian, shipping it out to Texas, and that's going to be going into the global oil market and perpetuating our addiction right. uh, to oil. Now, there are ways to deal with that, of course, but here in New Mexico, that, that's going to be a really big fight. Yeah, it is. And one of the one of the ironies that I've always felt I've always I've always felt this way, uh, but particularly since I have kids, is that you know climate change is going to dramatically impact our children. They are the ones who are going to have to deal with with this mess, and uh, their lives are going to be somewhat um, cheapened, made more difficult uh, by climate change, and yet their education in this state. And their um, their school system in this state is funded largely by oil and gas revenues, the mm-hmm. same industry that is harming their future. It, and it it's, is a sticky wicket. It is, and it's it's a it's a painful irony. Well, and you know, I think of it in the context of the the, the royalty revenue is providing benefits to our state on the education front, right? There's also a longer <laughs> term. Uh, what is opportunity for our children to stay in the in the state. You know, New Mexico is always lagging behind in terms of uh, real economic uh, opportunity. Instead, we've hitched our wagon to boom bust fossil fuel economics. So while everybody right now is off the wagon and 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 and, and, and drunk on this royalty revenue uh, and the horse is sort of meandering forward <laughs> with the wagon and, oh, you know, oil and gas, it's going to be fantastic forever. The reality is the bust will come. And when the bust comes, if we have not positioned our state through very aggressive uh, economic diversification and giving opportunities for communities to uh, determine for themselves their own futures and to diversify their economies away from fossil fuel economy, uh, uh, economics, uh, we're doing a disservice uh, 
uh, to the people of the state. So my sense is we very much need to pivot as aggressively as possible to a far more diversified uh, economic uh, economy. Some of the work, for example, in SB 489, that's the Energy Transition Act. This is what is going to decarbonize our electricity sector. Uh, it'll lock in the retirement, uh, effectively lock in the retirement of the San Juan Generating Station, and 924 megawatts of coal. That's fantastic. And it's going to boost the clean energy economy uh, here in the state by virtue of you know pretty aggressive targets uh, for electricity generation such that we go to zero emissions by 2050 uh, in terms of the electricity sector. That's fantastic. But yeah, we got, we got to deal with that oil export issue, essentially, uh, and continued use of oil and other fossil fuels in our economy and energy sector, transportation, housing, et cetera. Tell me more about the Energy Transition Act. It passed last night, didn't it? It did. It got through the Senate. This is a, this is a, a this is a big thank you to all the people who have called into their legislators to support uh, SB 489. It's now through the Senate. Uh, it's going to the House. Uh, and we'll see where it goes. And, and what I would encourage people who are listening is to call up their legislators, in particular their senators who voted in support of SB 489, and thank them. Yeah. You know, express your gratitude. They, that really is meaningful. And then call up your representatives in the House and, and make sure they move this forward expeditiously. What specifically does it do? Yeah. So what it does is uh, uh, it, it sets out very aggressive and long needed uh, goals for clean energy. So what it targets is 50% renewables, clean energy by 2030, uh, and a goal of 80% of renewables by 2040. And then to make our electricity sector 100% carbon free by uh, the 2045-2050 timeframe. So, that, so that's one key element to that. The, the other element that what it does, and this goes into the conversation about equity, inclusion, and justice is it requires that there's a large renewable energy build out in the area where the coal-fired power plant, San Juan Generating Station, will be retired. Uh, for better or for worse, the school district, for example, and the communities there rely on a lot of the tax revenue from the coal-fired power plant. So this targets renewables development in that area to help alleviate uh, that transition and to make sure that schools in that area and the communities are not, in fact, uh, losing money. And then what it does, That's it provides great. $20 million for uh, workforce retraining uh, for coal mines miners and operators of the coal-fired power plant. And then it provides an additional $20 million on top of that uh, for the broader community uh, through Economic and Workforce Solutions, a state-level agency, um, uh, to help diversify the economy, think through what the economy looks like on the long term in this region. Now, at one level, that sounds like a big Christmas tree. Hey, wonderful. What, you know, how, do, how, do, how do we, uh, it, does this have additional costs? You know, The reality is no. And what the bill allows is for what's called securitization. Now, this is a super wonky uh, financial tool that essentially allows PNM resources to bond the cost of abandonment. And by virtue of doing that, they reduce the total cost of abandonment. And the difference in terms of savings is used to provide for that workforce training. So this is actually uh, financially beneficial to New Mexicans. I think the, I think the charge on uh, your bill, if you're in PNM is something like $13 for various costs associated with uh, uh, operation of the San Juan generating station. This will reduce the amount uh, on, on everyone's bill while also transitioning to clean energy, sparking a clean energy economy and treating the communities in the region with respect by providing them with tools to transition to clean energy. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's quite a bit. So the Energy Transition Act passed 
the Senate last night. It's going on to the House. It's SB 489. And um, everybody who's listening, um, please call up your, uh, your representatives at the state level and encourage them to support this, this bill. It brings up a whole question for me about oil and gas infrastructure mm-hmm. that's out there on the land, that the need to transition to a clean energy economy, what is the value of all of their assets out on the, out on the landscape? You know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how this works, but it just seems that there's all this infrastructure going in, tens of millions of dollars that's being built and, and going into the landscape around New Mexico. And in a way, it's, it's already valueless. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, well, it, you know, it depends on how you take a look at it, right? So, yes, you have billions of dollars flowing into, in particular, uh, the Permian Basin down in the Greater Carlsbad area. The big concern that I have when you think about it from an economics perspective and what kind of legal tools you have to get a hold of it, all those companies want a return on investment. So, as they build infrastructure, they typically capitalize that over a period of years. So, they're not going to want to abandon that infrastructure, even if some sort of very rigorous uh, climate regime comes into place. So, it gives them leverage okay. uh, in those negotiations. Uh, and it creates problems in terms of how you structure a particular, say, climate bill to address with emissions from this sector. So in some respects, uh, you know, what you're really talking about is how do you minimize the amount of infrastructure that's going on the landscape? This gets tricky because with methane, sometimes you need infrastructure to right. deal with the methane pollution. And that's where, as we take a look at the methane problem, we're like, okay, this is, this is, a, mar- this is a good thing to do but it is not a solution unto itself. It's sort of like a Band-Aid in the interim until we can really wrestle with the role of oil and gas infrastructure on our landscape. And so as we think about that, basically a capital investment problem that the oil and gas companies, all that money that there's flowing into these areas that they're gonna to wanna to return on investment, how do we minimize the, number of, the amount of acreage that is being leased? Right. Uh, and then how do we put in place a plan, in particular at the federal level, given the dominance of federal public lands in the region and how it has ripple effects to, say, state and private lands and development? How do we start thinking about a phase-out, a managed phase-out over time of oil and gas you know, over a period of, say, 10 to 15 years? And so as our economy transitions, that's why we really need to think about how to diversify our economy protect our public lands, transition away from oil and gas leasing and development. Well, and, and along with that, as, as we transition away from oil and gas development, I think another concern that's tied up in exactly what we're talking about is, is it, who pays for mitigation, mm-hmm. who pays for the removal and the, 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 the capping of wells, the removal of infrastructure, any pollution that's left behind. Is that being dealt with by the new governor of the state legislature? Who, who's uh, going to pay for that? The taxpayer? Yeah, we'll see. You know, <laughs> the, the, there, there's a lot of issues with bonding. And so what typically happens is uh, an oil and gas company will bond the cost of, say, abandonment reclamation. These are notoriously uh, underfunded. And typically what happens is you'll have like a major oil and gas company come in, a Chevron or an Exxon. They'll drill a well. They usually, it's sort of an interesting dynamic where the big oil and gas companies have environmental staff. They kind of they kind of dial in the latest technologies, minimize their pollution footprint, et cetera. They kind of understand the social license aspect uh, overall. But as that well 
reduces in production, they'll then sell it off to a smaller company right. who is not as uh, good. Uh, and those companies get really sloppy. They are undercapitalized. And then they'll go into bankruptcy or just abandon the well on the landscape. And then you and I and everybody listening, we're left with the bill. Right. So that is a major problem. And so as I think of regulatory and legal reform with oil and gas development, there are two aspects to that. First is sort of all those marginal things nibbling around the edges of the oil and gas industry, boosting bonding requirements, making sure that there are effective uh, requirements in place to remove infrastructure from the landscape and restore natural conditions as much as possible, protecting water quality from oil and gas uh, impacts, making sure they're, uh, quote unquote, doing it right. I'm not sure there is a way to do oil and gas development right anymore, yeah. but at least more responsibly. More responsibly. Yeah. And then the other aspect is the more visionary, ambitious work to, in fact, phase out uh, oil and gas leasing and development. And my sense is people, some people listen to be like, you know, no, that's never going to happen in right. Mexico. Well, take a look at, uh, and this is, this kind of goes to the debate about climate change and where I think it's going, it, it kind of goes to your definition of pragmatism. You know, is your definition of pragmatism confined to what is viewed as politically possible in the moment? Or is your definition of pragmatism defined by the imperative as uh, uh, defined by science. Right. I'm going to go into the lab. I'm going to go into the lab. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, at the end of, at the end of the day, physics is a pretty powerful force. Let's talk about Chaco. Chaco yeah. Canyon is one of place that's near and dear to my heart. I used to work out in that area as an archeologist a long time ago. I go out there as frequently as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, it's facing some major issues and this, uh, oil and gas drilling in the greater Chaco region isn't, is an issue that's been going on for years now. Yeah. Where are we at? Uh, <laughs> I laugh, like where to start? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a difficult situation. Uh, one thing that I would emphasize is that the, the greater Chaco, and, and I alluded to this earlier, it's not just a public lands issue. It, it is not simply a function of how do we protect Chaco Canyon itself. It is very much an issue involving the communities out in that area, in particular in the tri-chapter uh, area of uh, Torreon uh, and Counselor and Nagizi. You know, these are Navajo communities that are squarely uh, in the crosshairs of oil and gas development, and they're dealing with oil and gas development now. So we are very much thinking this of, of both our advocacy as well as the solutions long-term as a sort of equation of public lands plus communities equals the solution. So there are two levels to this fight right now. Well, there's more than that, but uh, it, this is a, the, largely a federal issue given the BLM's uh, role in approving new oil and gas leases uh, and development at an administrative level with BLM under the Trump administration. Farmington Field Office, even under the Obama administration, was quite frankly a, a rogue field office. I mean, these guys yeah. were pushing out the oil and gas leases, approving oil and gas drilling permits. There's a lot of history of some sketchy, uh, 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 sketchy relationships between BLM management, Steve Henke, in the Farmington field office and the oil and gas industry, uh, as illustrated by the fact that he left BLM and then became the executive director of the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. Right. You know, follow the money, right? Yeah. So big problem there. So we are essentially waging a litigation and administrative challenge war uh, against BLM. There is an upcoming lease sale uh, in March uh, in the greater Chaco area. Uh, we have protested that. There were just around 30,000 uh, uh, protest comments submitted on that, which is wonderful. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see what it does. It's not going to push BLM, but it does start to create political space 
for people who can make a difference in this area. And I'll get to that in a second. We're also in court right now, uh, challenging several hundred oil and gas drilling permits that have been issued in this area. Um, we have argument before the U.S. 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in about two weeks on this. Uh, so keep your fingers crossed in terms of how that argument uh, will go. Um, our attorneys, Kyle Tisdell, and our uh, Taos office here, as well as Samantha Ruscavage Bars with a partner group, Wild Earth Guardians, will be arguing uh, that case. It's going to be uh, sort of oddly in Salt Lake City, but that's where the argument uh, will take place. And then the bigger picture, thinking about long term, is at the federal level uh, and Congress, where last year Senators Udall and Heinrich introduced a bill to protect Chaco Canyon itself, largely by creating a 10-mile buffer around the park itself and then withdrawing the oil and gas minerals within it from future leasing. Uh, that was a good step. Uh, but it didn't deal with that other part of the equation, the community side. So we've been working very intensively with the delegation to strengthen that legislation. I'm optimistic that we'll see a new bill, perhaps within as soon as a month or so, uh, that is uh, boosted in terms of the level of protections. And what I've really appreciated from Senator Udall's office, you know, frankly, I, I criticized the introduction of the bill last year because I thought it was a bit anemic and did not address those community concerns for Navajo people uh, in that area. Um, they've done a good job thinking full spectrum about how to deal with greater Chaco in terms of air quality issues, considering the idea of uh, boosted protections for the communities. I think this is going to be a big long-term uh, suite of actions with Chaco, some legislative, some administrative, some in federal court. And the way we think about it is you move all those different parts and you start to duct tape them together and couple years from now, hopefully we'll have some kind of longer term solution that puts the greater Chaco region on a pathway to uh, protection, both for the public lands and the communities. I think it's worth noting or explaining maybe a little bit that, you know, there is the Chaco Canyon Historic Park that has the, um, the incredible uh, archaeological sites mm -hmm. like Pueblo Bonito and Chetraquetl and these places that are, that are very dramatic. Um, but Chaco itself as a, as a, as an entity, as a political entity or a cultural entity, historically, prehistorically, was very large and extended mm -hmm. far beyond the park. So there are there are literally hundreds of thousands of archaeological sites and very important cultural sites and and cultural sites that are important to the Hopi, the Navajo, uh, and other Native American tribes in the region. All the pueblos in the Rio Grande. Valley. All the pueblos in the Rio Grande Valley within that, what we're calling the greater Chaco area, which is outside of the park. So I, I think that there's, there's, so there's this archeological and cultural piece of it, but there in that greater Chaco area, there's a lot of communities. There's a lot of people out there and the oil and gas drilling in that region impacts their health directly, mm -hmm. not just their culture, not just their, their ancestors, but, but their health. And that's where we've been very much pushing the delegation to acknowledge and recognize legislatively that entire landscape. And that's where, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about the Green New Deal. I think that's where the Green New Deal comes in. And, you know, as you look at what the basic framework of the Green New Deal is, yes, it's mitigation of climate pollution, but it's also advancing a commitment to equity and justice, in particular for fossil fuel dependent communities. And then it's looking at our workforce and our economy, and it's essentially industrial and manufacturing policy, right. you know, where federal government is encouraging industrial manufacturing policy in certain directions, and then will hopefully uh, provide the tools for communities to diversify their economies on the ground to get off boom bust fossil fuel economics. 
economics. And so, and, and here in New Mexico, I think there's a lot of opportunity where Senators Udall and Heinrich, fantastic on public lands, but now you have new blood in Congress. For example, Representative Deb Holland, who is native and has signed on to the Green New Deal just in February down in Albuquerque, had a forum on Green New Deal. I love that alchemy yeah. of thinking about public lands and community protection and climate action all at once. It's really powerful. It is powerful. And that's that's part of that optimism right there. Yes. Um, let's switch gears in our last five minutes. Uh, you had mentioned cli-fi, yeah. climate, climate change fiction. We had talked about that uh, once before on the show with Ben Goldfarb. And uh, I, when you brought that up, I was interested because I write climate change fiction. Yeah. You know, I've been writing a lot of, uh, doing a lot of nature writing, but but over the past year, I've really tried to explore my feelings about climate change and where we're going through my writing, through my fiction writing with cli-fi. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, you, you know, I, I think it was relegated to sort of this weird genre for geeks and wonks uh, 10 years ago. And what I think is fascinating about the, genre, the, the area now is it's really moving into more of a general fiction level in right. terms of the acceptance by uh, people. And I think what's really powerful, and this relates to our whole conversation, it is imagining different futures. And by virtue of imagining different futures, you are opening up the eyes of, of people who read those books to think about what the future could look like, both really, really bad. You think of like a Cormac McCarthy. It's heavy um, dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're traversing the landscape with your son and you know, you, you're looking for food every few days, right? So uh, that kind of landscape. Or you think of somebody like a Kim Stanley Robinson has, who has a far more uh, optimistic take. You think about his book, New York 2140, where acknowledges the impacts of climate change, but also about human beings and, and society has a capacity to respond in a way such that we can thrive uh, as a species. So I think those two poles are really interesting. And then I really think of it as sort of a triangle where you think of uh, emerging authors, uh, in particular women and people of color who are moving into this space. You think of like a, a Nettie Okra for, or, or folks like that who are really bringing in those other voices and showing us, uh, if we listen, uh, how uh, people of color and communities that are otherwise marginalized, that have been historically marginalized, are impacted by climate change and need to be accounted for as we think about climate action. There's also another genre that kind of critiques cli-fi for being too dystopian and dark, which is solar punk mm -hmm. uh, um, as a genre that that tries to lay out an, a very optimistic view of the future that, you know, we've overcome climate change or maybe it happened and then we, we figured out how to deal with it and we've created not utopian, but clean energy, equitable societies. What's interesting about reading those is that people have a, a there's a difficult time in fiction writing to to imagine that. Yeah. Uh, people struggle with well, what's the if you write a utopia, what's the conflict? I like the critique of the dystopian yeah. type of stuff, but it 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 it, it appears very challenging to write. I read that. Did you read Yuval Harari Sapiens? Yes. Yeah. So that, that gave me sort of a perspective on uh -huh. humanity. Let's, let's just say, I don't think we're that special. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and not clear to me whether our cognitive ability is actually a good thing or a bad thing. It kind of gets <laughs> us into these traps, right? I, I think the reality is, is yeah, I, you know, I think that there are really optimistic, 
uh, takes out there that are very possible, and we have the ability to shape the future to make that happen. I think the reality is is we're in for a world of hurt, at least in this century. And so even though you know with solar punk, man, you know for our children's generation, it's going to be real tough between 2050, 2100, and maybe then our grandkids and great grandkids through 2200. That's where I like Kim Stanley Robinson because mm-hmm. if you look at his work, he goes out a, a, a ways, says this is how it could be optimistically. But there's always these little paragraphs in his book about, well, there was this period in the 2080s right. where, nice. you know, massive suffering. And I think that's kind <laughs> of the reality and that's the world that we are uh, living in. And that's not a reason to, to withdraw into yourself. If anything, uh, you know, I, I feel this commitment and this optimism to moving in space. How privileged to work in a time period where you working with others have the ability to change the course of the world. To that's literally awesome. rewrite the future. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's an opportunity. That's not an ego thing. That's a thing based on working with partners and allies and friends to shape our evolution as a species. Yeah, absolutely. If people are interested in the work we're doing, go to www.westernlaw.org. Uh, we have offices here in New Mexico, but we operate westwide. So we uh, also have main offices up in Montana, Oregon, Washington State. And uh, we feel really good. We've made a really huge impact during the Trump administration. I think there's a signal boosting through the noise, and I feel pretty good, as much as uh, sometimes it's also a sobering period of time. Thank you, Eric, for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.